welcome to Of Dust and Divinity, an ongoing conversation with makers, thinkers, and doers, where we ask big questions of the small things. It's that idea of needing to be right in order to justify what really are unacceptable things. Um, like, you know, it's very easy to look behind us and look in front of us and see atrocities committed against other human beings in the name of our country. Um, all sorts of exclusive and oppressive behavior has been tolerated um, because we need to exist. And so I do think there's a level of existential crisis when people feel like they can't justify what they're doing um, as legal because there is something in the American psyche that has to defend itself why it even exists in the first place. Of Dust and Divinity is an ongoing conversation carrying threads from one episode to the next. Like, if the podcast itself were a table in the back corner of your local pub, and each round of guests are like friends gathered at the table in free-flowing conversation. At the table with me today are beautiful souls who I cannot wait for you to meet. Here they are. Hi, I'm Katie. I'm a lawyer and I represent Parents in Dependency Court, which is where families go whenever a kid is getting put in foster care. I'm single and currently living with my parents, which is a decision I had the foresight to make three months before America went into indefinite lockdown. I am a cisgender woman, a 2.5 generation Korean American, a third culture kid, and an H on the Enneagram. I did undergrad at Wellesley, which is an all-women's liberal arts college and law school at the University of Michigan. I identify most strongly as a Christian in the grand tradition of Jonah and Jacob, which is to say there's a lot of running away and a lot of wrestling involved. If I could clone myself and have two jobs, I'd be a florist and spend my days making pointless, beautiful things. And I am Sherry Kramer. I'm an attorney uh, and a tax planner. In my youth, I worked at nonprofits, in particular Cultural Survival, which is an indigenous rights organization based in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And now I work for a local globally recognized retail and tech brand based in Seattle, Washington, where the pay is much better. Um, the work itself, it's intellectually engaging and it's fodder for my thoughts on the value of capitalism, the role of white patriarchy in the United States and the pressing need for humans to take advantage of our consciousness to become better versions of ourselves. I would say I'm spiritually active and I abhor the hate and violence that's indoctrinated by institutionalized religions. If I could clone myself, I'd be a fiction writer and I'm working on becoming one. And I'm your host, Caben Kramer. I'm a fourth generation California farmer farming walnuts on fertile concow land along the edge of the Feather River. I'm a husband and father to two awesome kids, I identify as a white male and I'm loving my 30s. Formally, I'm educated as an engineer, though I've never actually practiced engineering as a profession. I identify as a follower of Jesus, and I find the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus attractive. If I could clone myself and do two occupations, my clone would probably be a cultural anthropologist. Um, so I represent mostly parents and some kids in dependency court. What that means is anytime 
a kid is getting taken into foster care because of allegations of abuse or neglect, there's a whole court process that opens up parallel to uh, that happening. And my job is to come in and represent the parents in the course of that process. Um, I should say sometimes I also represent kids, um, but for the most part, I'm representing moms, dads, legal guardians, uh, other caregivers. Um, and the reason I say this normally takes about 10 or 15 minutes to explain is because I think it can be very off-putting at the beginning to say, hey, I represent parents who are being accused of abuse and neglect. Um, and I always feel very strongly that I, I need people to understand, like, my parents, my clients are not the people that you're seeing in, you know, these kind of horrific uh, kind of scandalous news articles about people who are like locking their children away in basements for years and years on end. By and large, my clients are people who um, overwhelmingly live in poverty, disproportionately are Black people in um, the county that I work in. They're overwhelmingly Latinx families. Um, a lot of children are removed for substance abuse allegations, for domestic violence allegations, um, and for you know a number, a host of other kind of similar or adjacent things. And the thing that I always want to explain to people is like, my clients are certainly not perfect people. There are parents who have most of the time messed up in one way or another, but they absolutely love their children. And um, almost all of them have been through some kind of trauma, systemic violence, uh, you know, experienced some level of racism, racism or deep poverty or mental health issues themselves or themselves grew up in situations where they were exposed to drugs or violence or what, what have you from a very young age. And so I see my role um, in a few ways. One, to kind of walk them through the court system and help them have a voice and an advocate. Um, I think, but, but beyond that, you know, the hope of the system is that it ends with this generation. That if you have a kid who is being taken from a home in which there is you know, a lot of substance use because that parent grew up in a home where there was a lot of substance use, that moving forward, that this would be the last generation where you have a child growing up in a home where there's extensive substance use or extensive subs or extensive domestic violence or mental health issues, right? And that's hard. <laughs> like you're working against a lot of history and a lot of intergenerational trauma and a lot of systemic racism and systemic classism. Um, and so a lot of times it doesn't work, right? But that's the goal that we're striving towards is to break those cycles and to really help families come back together. Katie, I would be curious to know, you said it usually takes 10 minutes to explain this and you feel like you should explain it fully to people who ask. Mm -hmm. I'd be curious to know, does that stem from a sense that people think that you've chosen wrong to defend these people or that these people don't deserve defending? I, you know, honestly, I've never, I've never asked because I've always just introduced it that way from the get go. Mm -hmm. um, because I think I have a sensitivity around it is strange to say 
I represent parents who are being accused of abusing and neglecting their child. Like that's a strange sentence to say. And so I've always mm-hmm. kind of preempted any follow-up questions with like, and here's why I choose to do that. Um, because I have also worked in places where I've represented children primarily. And I, um, when I took this job, I actually had the option to go to the agency in this county that represents primarily children. And so I, I could have done that. And I think there's a lot more kind of inherent moral uh, attractiveness, one could say, mm-hmm. in like I'm representing vulnerable children who are being abused and neglected. And you just don't get that when you're on the other side of it. But um, you know, for a number of reasons, this to me was, I think is more attractive because I think if you if you can, like it is a beautiful thing to get a child into a home where they are safe and loved and all of that. But at the end of the day, the reality is every child is going to want their biological parents. Like that, that just is something we see over and over and over again, that no matter how bad the situation is at home, kids want to go home to their parents. Yeah, that's right. And if you can get it, if you can get parents to a place where they can have their kids back, that is so much better than the best foster or adoptee home out there. That's my opinion anyways. What's the intersection between what is legal and what is just? And you're assuming there's always an intersection. <laughs> Good point. (laughs) Well, let let me just say the promise of America claims that there's an intersection. There we go. (laughs) Uh, I remember when I was living in Auburn, there was a moment where California had declared itself a sanctuary state, kind of in the middle of a lot of different big changes that were happening around the immigration sphere. And so California had said, we are, as a state, not going to cooperate with federal immigration law enforcement who try to, you know, who, who are trying to take away and deport or detain immigrants. And in response to this, some of the California counties said, we don't like that. We want the ability for our law enforcement to help hand over immigrants to federal immigration law enforcement. And so there was this whole challenge in the court system. Um, and that while that was going on, Placer County, where I was living at the time, uh, decided to be one of or decided to try to be one of those counties that had opted out of the sanctuary state uh, rule. And so there was a big meeting at the County Board of Supervisors and a lot of people coming out on both sides of the question. And I think what was so fascinating to me is that people on both sides were were saying, this is not legal, like this is not right. And they said, this is not legal, as though that held kind of a moral weight, as if that meant essentially the same thing as this is not just. Um, And in particular, I think the people who, you know, opposed being a sanctuary state, the people who wanted law enforcement to be able to 
hand over immigrants to ICE. Um, those are the people who were overwhelmingly saying like, well, this isn't legal and it's not legal for these people to be here. And it's not right that they came here this way. And so when it was my turn to make a public comment, one of the things that I pointed out was what is legal is essentially just whatever a group of people has decided to put down on a piece of paper. So from, I think, 1882 till 1965, it was not legal for people from my my ancestors' country, Korea, to come to the United States. Like, that wasn't legal. And then somebody figuratively tore up that piece of paper, wrote a new piece of paper, and here I am. And so what's legal is this incredibly, like, arbitrary technical thing. And I'm sure Sherry is very familiar with, like, exactly how technical the law can be. Um, but, but like the reality is it's so arbitrary. I think in your question, Kaven, is kind of this premise that the law is a fixed thing to begin with, that we can attribute justice or lack thereof to, and, and it just isn't, right? It's this like very strange, arbitrary thing that people decide it's going to be. I don't know if I can add to that. Um, so I'll expounds um i i will say i love the um simple beauty of this american idea that we can have something that is true that extends past you know something that is always true i i think that heart of the american psyche is arguably naive and innocent but it's beautiful it's hopeful um, but as Katie said so well, just because it's written down doesn't mean it's some sort of universal truth that has always been true and will always be true. Um, but I like the optimism <laughs> of that American ideal. I agree with Katie. I obviously work with a highly technical area of law. In addition to domestic tax law, there's also all these um, tax treaties that I analyze and interpretive rulings and case law. Um, and it, it's extremely technical and nuanced, and you can get lost in those weeds. Um, but I would say, when you step back and you look at the tax code, it does the law itself and the interpretation of the law definitely supports one spe- a specific point of view, and it definitely overall says that a specific point of view is the way that we as the United States are going to financially operate, how we are going to, the activities we're going to encourage and those that we aren't, which is there is some elements of moral or at least social um, construction in those elements. You can get into the weeds, you can move things around a little bit, you can muck around and get to slightly different conclusions for different use cases, but that there is an overarching theme um, to the structures, uh, the overall structures of at least the tax law. And that in itself does not mean that that point of view is necessarily the only just point of view and the only right point of view. Um, but it is a point of view, and there is an element of the law where there's a choice, a social or socio-political choice, or socio-economic political choice. Um, this intersectional choice that is a, um, a country has about who they want to be. And 
arguably there are many ways of being that are good and I, I don't know how far we want to devolve, but there's all sorts of definitions of what, what good is. Um, but let's use a simple definition of good, meaning um, taking care of the people within a country's borders, right? Um, if that's a simple conclusion, then you could look at the tax code now and you can say what it's saying is that what's good for America is um, the growth of wealth, of capital. And, and that's the conclusion that we've reached. Um, and that it's good to concentrate capital in specific legal entities and um, and other juri <laughs> juridical entities, these bodies that exist in the fiction that is law. Um, and, and that's where the conclusion is there. Um, so there, there's also that overlap where law is also the expression of a society's decision of what is good for that society, whether that's a decision made by the plurality or whether it's made by certain people is, is a different discussion. Um, Sherry, I, I feel compelled to point out that I just really love that you started by, you started with a definitional question and then defined <laughs> the scope of the question that you were trying to answer and then answered in a very neat way. I really, really appreciated that. Well, I'm glad. Thank you. Thank you for appreciating that. Uh, <laughs> my husband were here, he'd roll his eyes. Thank you. It, it, was, it was great. Um, I, yeah, I, I do appreciate your boldness and having two lawyers on the podcast at the same time. <laughs> okay. So, so you guys both brought up this thread that I, I want to dig into a little bit more. So Katie, you said, you know, there's this premise within the question that suggests that the law is somehow fixed and that we can assign justice to this fixed point called mm -hmm. law. And then Sherry, you had this beautiful line that said the fiction that is law, which was kind of implying this thing that law is itself some projected reality from the collective consciousness or the individual consciousness. And that is not a framework that I was taught in elementary school right? like that. What, what is that? How are you guys interacting with that as professionals in that environment? Oh, all right. All right. Um, well, as I stated in my bio, I also am interested in being a fiction writer. So maybe I, it was destiny, um, to work in the fiction that is law. No, um, to your, I think what you're asking Cabin is, um, how do I, as a person who wants to do what is just and good, balance that with the idea that law is kind of, um, is it is contrived by society? Is that what you're asking? It, it can be now. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> oh, no. I, I love it. Vote. It's great. <laughs> um, I, I do see humanity as something that can, that has a lot of choice. And I think the choice that we have is beautiful. I think it also leads to a lot of horrors, um, but we have this thing called choice. And so I don't mind that the law is fiction. I kind of accept that a lot of what we do is a form of fiction. Um, maybe the word fiction is misleading in the way I'm using it now. It's, a, it's an expression. It's an expression of either an individual expression or a collective expression. Um, it's an expression of cooperation or it's an expression of exclusion but it is an expression of our humanity. And 
to me, that's a beautiful thing. And do I think that, you know, section 367 D of the tax code is a beautiful thing? <laughs> Arguably no, but I, I do think law itself and the way that we create these systems of trust to interact with each other and we call them law, I think that's cool. I, I do like that aspect. Um, if you were looking for a day-to-day -day example, I'm, um, I also, I guess you could say a, a lot of what I'm dealing with now, there's been some um, special use cases because of changes in business operations because of COVID-19. And we're really trying to rely on the tax treaties that exist. And then this kind of um, loose guidance that some countries are giving that's not really binding guidance. And in that gray area, um, I, I do like that I am discussing um, fervently with my colleagues and our business partners on what is the best answer for our our immediate business need, um, which is you know certainty in the midst of uncertainty, um, and and so I actually enjoy that ambiguous aspect, and I enjoy the fact that it does come to down to us deciding together what is the best choice. Yeah, maybe to bring together kind of what I understood to be Kaden's initial question and then Sherry, what you just said, you know, in, in law school, I remember having this moment when I was in my first year of law school and writing a legal memorandum for my, um, for my like writing practice class. And we were given a set of cases and told, like analyze the law, come up with what the right approach to this particular situation is. And at that time, my approach to it was like a math question. Like if you put one, two, three, mm -hmm. four together, right? Like you should come out with like this perfect answer. And there's a answer with like a capital A. <laughs> and what I and what I learned like very quickly is there is there are things that people have said whether that be in case law or in statute or in regulation, whatever you're looking at as the law, there are things that people have said, and then you get to take that and try to messily apply it to your given situation. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and similarly, I think, you know, what you were saying about the law as fiction, just to add to that, I think, I think there's a very, and this is, I guess, kind of in my initial point too, but I think ultimately the law is either a set of words that the legislature has put down on paper or a case law, which is judges looking at a situation and kind of deciding what they think should be the right principles in that situation. Right? There, there are all these different ways that law gets created, but ultimately it is created by people. And so, you know, first year of law school me or like elementary school Kaben thinking of laws as mathematical thing with a perfect answer with a fixed answer like that's not the reality of how it works um but to your point sherry i think there is there can be something very beautiful about that i think there i often see in my current job and in the job that i had before this i often see Kind of the oppression that gets perpetuated mm -hmm. and recreated when you have the people in power trying to keep power writing laws to solidify their power like the law can be a very ugly and very terrible thing when it's used in that way 
But I think it can, when done right, also be this thing that puts order to chaos. And so the thing that I like to half jokingly, but half seriously actually say is in a zombie apocalypse, like everyone always thinks, oh, you want your warrior, you want your doctor, you want the strong person. My thing is like, hey, you want a lawyer because you want someone who can go into the middle of raging chaos and put order to it. And I know that's not how people often think of lawyers, but I think that's a lot of what we actually do. I think that's what drives a lot of, you know, kind of your real lawyerly lawyers. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I do think there's something beautiful to that, Sherry. Like, thank you this mm-hmm. Yeah, as I was thinking about that question, what came to mind is, you know, if law, if, if there's this fiction that we call law, first of all, that doesn't mean we need to disregard it because like you said, Sherry, it's a system of trust, right? So it's essentially a public yeah. record of how we choose to trust one another. But mm-hmm. since it's also a fiction, the people who write it write themselves as the hero, right? So we're, we're just going to take this analogy and we're going to stretch it way beyond what would stand up in court, which is totally fine because this is a podcast. But um, um <laughs> right? So like <laughs> if the law is fiction, it's written by the people who want to make themselves a hero. And that gets to Katie, what you're talking about, about kind of how, how that fiction, which is beautiful from one perspective, becomes very nightmarish from another perspective, that there is a lot of manipulation and possession. And, one of the things as I'm coming into this with this question, um, kind of two main main threads of, of this question for me. One is there's been times in my life where I've interacted with people who were not kind humans. And whenever you would try to call them on their stuff, and, and th- these weren't lawyers, these were people in other industries and businesses. You try to call them on their stuff and their answer would be like, well, but everything I'm doing is legal. And I'm like, I, I don't really care because it's not very human, right? Like, so th- there's that side of it. That's like, I feel like there's people I know who don't work in the legal field, but when they care ultimately about whether or not what they do is legal, there's like this immediate red flag that goes in my head of like, oh, they probably don't have integrity. If they're falling back on their behavior being legal and not trustworthy or full of integrity or full of compassion or full of goodwill, but they just fall back on like, well, it's legal. Then I'm like, okay, there's a red flag there. And then, of course, a second part of this is is that individualization that we're talking about, which, you know, in a lot of ways, there's part of law that can embody and personify American exceptionalism. That is to say the law applies to everyone but me in this area. And, of course, we've got this kind of... <laughs> Uh, we've got this figure who's playing this out of what it means to push the boundaries of American exceptionalism in the individual to say, you know, I think everyone else should wear a mask, but I don't think it's for me to do, right? Um, or you just think of all the lawsuits that the Trump administration has gone through, and, you know, he he is an impeached president who's running on a platform that hasn't even mentioned the fact that he's an impeached president. Like, I mean, how personified can your exceptionalism be to say, oh, impeachment matters, but just not to me, right? I am not underneath what that means. And it leads to this question of like, how far can we trust the law to embody justice when the people who write the law write themselves to be the hero of the law and are often unjust people? Yeah, I 
(laughs) you know, this ties into what I say whenever people talk about how everyone hates lawyers. My thing is people hate lawyers because lawyers do awful things because the law is a powerful tool and so it can be used very powerfully for awful ends. But that's exactly why you need lawyers and you should like lawyers is because the ones, you know, not that everything is black and white and good and bad, but so to speak, the ones who are on the quote unquote good side of the equation are the ones who are going to keep that balance, um, hopefully and aspirationally, and at least fight for it. But, but, you know, we're at least going to be fighting for it. Before you were talked about the specific administration, Cabin, what you were saying about this need to, of certain, this need Americans can have to say, oh, but what I'm doing is legal. That kind of protection that they need to believe that there's some sort of rightness validated, um, that's validating their actions. I, when I hear things like that, I honestly think this is, it's a trait of um, the white patriarchy that definitely permeates a good part of American culture, uh, mainstream culture at least. And it's that idea of needing to be right in order to justify what really are unacceptable things. Um, Like, you know, it's very easy to look behind us and look in front of us and see atrocities committed against other human beings in the name of um, our country. You know, slavery, um, Trail of Tears, just to name a few. Um, all sorts of exclusive and oppressive behavior has been tolerated um, because we need to exist. And so I do think there's a level of existential crisis when people feel like they can't justify what they're doing um, as legal because there is something in the American psyche that has to defend itself why it even exists in the first place. So there is an element there. and I know that's not speaking of the law specifically, but I think, I, as I was saying, I do think the law is an expression of a, a collectiveness or, you know, whether it's a minority or major, majority collectiveness, a collectiveness. And I, I do think that strain is exists in the American psyche and it's very anxious right now that that part of the American psyche is anxious because it is getting a lot of confrontation from people who disagree that that's the only vision of America that sh- can and should exist. and. To your point, I think that does push the boundaries um, for some individuals. In one of my courses about cross-cultural stuff, it came across this idea that, you know, it is very uniquely American that we have this really strong, compelling neurological disorder where we have to justify everything we do. Like if we do something wrong, it's very difficult for the American psyche just to be like, oh yeah, that's wrong. Like if I say my ideal is to always speak kindly to my children and then I yell at my children, I can't just say, oh yeah, you're right. That is my ideal. I'm aware of my ideal and I missed my ideal. Oops. Okay. Moving on. Like that is very hard for the American psyche to do. We we have to say, oh, well, I yelled at my kid because... 
he did this and I couldn't get his attention. So then I had to do that. And then I had to raise my voice. Like we just run this crazy and, and we see it all the time, right? These mental gymnastics we put ourselves through in sometimes very public ways just to come up with the justification instead of just saying, you're right. I said that my ideal is to speak with kindness. And then 20 minutes later, I did not speak with kindness. And there almost seems to be this belief that like, if that happens then somehow like you're not a whole person, like somehow you're split down the middle instead of just realizing that like, no, we're complicated human beings that hold both ideals and brokenness in the same body. And as we move through time and space, we embody different parts of our ideals or our brokenness. But we feel like once we, once we name an ideal out loud, then we are held exactly to the fullness of that ideal. And if we ever fall short of that ideal, we darn well better have some good justification as to why. And the justification can't just be like, well, cause I'm not perfect. Like that just doesn't fly, right? So on the one hand, you have people like the current administration who just outright deny that they ever fall short of their own ideals. And then on the other hand, you have cancel culture where people end up quitting after years and years of really high impact in certain areas because of something that came up from 20 years ago, right? And like, we just struggle immensely as a culture to hold this tension of idealism and brokenness on both sides of the equation. You know, Kevin, I'm, I can't believe I'm putting myself in this position, but I'm actually going to defend Americans a little bit. It's a very <laughs> unique place for me to Do find it. myself. So <laughs> let's mark this moment. But, um, you know, I will say, I don't know if that's unique to Americans. I think the way maybe that it plays out in 21st century America is a new and special way that we've discovered of doing it. But I think what you're talking about is ultimately shame. And like, I'm a big Brene Brown follower, but I think shame is something that's written into the human DNA. And so I think it's not a question of does America do it more and do we have a unique need to do it? It's more, how is every different culture doing it? Um, as an Asian American, I, I think, you know, shame is a big, explicitly is a big part of Asian culture. And, you know, I, I think that plays out in a lot of ways. I, I don't know that it looks the same way as Amer this American need to kind of justify ourselves in the in the way that you're describing but i think there there's a very strong concept in asian culture around not losing face right of being very protective of your image um and the way that asian culture at least as i've experienced asian culture the way that you navigate that is you have structure right and so you have a structure of when you commit this kind of you know whether it be a, let's say you commit a social faux pas, this is how you respond to it. And this is who bears the responsibility for responding to it. Um, and if you commit like a deeper transgression, this is how you respond to it. And this is who bears the responsibility for responding to it. Things like that, where you have this kind of structure in place for it. And just to bring this around to the law, I think in America, because we don't have this culture, we don't have a collective sense of how society should work and how we handle these situations where something has gone wrong, we have turned 
the law, the structure of the law, into our version of that structure. And I think, you know, we're seeing that that doesn't work. Um, I also think I have seen a lot of times, in my experience so far anyway, that the law often tries to play the role of subbing in as a proxy for what really should be individual accountability, individual apology, and relational repair. And instead we say, well, if I give you monetary compensation, that should make up for the indignity you've suffered or the loss that you've suffered, right? It, which, which is weird when you think about it, but that's how we've structured ourselves as a society. I'm not necessarily saying the Asian way of doing it is better, right? I think that there's no culture in the world that navigates shame and accountability correctly. But I think the, the crisis that we're facing in America right now is we've set up these structures and said, okay, this is how we are going to handle our individual or our collective shame. This is how we're going to handle shame or transgression or even faux pas, right? And it, and it's just a poor substitute and it's starting to fray at the edges. And I think we're seeing that. Um, the pessimistic side of me says, so we're just going to collapse into anarchy and I don't know what comes next. But, you know, I think there is maybe room for optimism too, maybe. And that as we see that like the laws not perfect and these kind of whatever social structures we've set up to handle our shame and our again transgressions of whatever sort that those things aren't working that maybe that does bring us back to more relationship and more individual reflection and repair maybe <laughs> i'm an optimist katie so um or <laughs> next i'm not it's just i feel like i've become the optimist in the room <laughs> Interestingly, I've heard um, a lot of people express concern about what's next for America because you're right. It's, yeah, there's a lot that's surfacing. But part of my argument is that the law does change. So there's that. But to your deeper point that the law shouldn't and doesn't replace these interpersonal and kind of communal, um, social, um, almost intangibles. I, I look at the, the beautiful cultures and subcultures that have been produced in America despite um, the negatives in our history and I see that as hopeful. We have found unique ways of communicating amongst ourselves um, that are very American um, and extremely expressive and in certain ways, while they're not reparations or any type of you know structural healing, I, I do think that they create common languages um, for people to at least meet um, together in that common language, which is a step. I think my pushback to that would be the foundations for that conversation were laid by white people and in favor of the self-preservation of white supremacy explicitly, mm -hmm. right? Like the founding of our country was yeah. written in written by white people for the preservation of white supremacy right and yeah. and so to me where i i think struggle with that same optimism that you expressed is i don't know how to have a conversation when 
the tables are so uneven, right? Where like, how do you come to the table where one side has been perpetuating its own dominance for hundreds of years? Mm -hmm. How do you come to that conversation and have anything like a a really like equal conversation about what comes next or right? about who we want to be like, like that Joe Biden announced that he had picked um, Kamala Harris as his vice president. And immediately you have all of these discussions, right? Like some people saying, I celebrate that there's a black woman, that there's a woman, that there is a you know, Indian woman on the ticket, on the presidential ticket. And then you have other people saying, but this is also a woman who in her role as attorney general of the state of California, perpetuated these very harsh and very oppressive rules um, against specifically, you know, black and brown children. And the like other, the whole other side of that cube is in some ways she was just doing what the position that she was in almost required her to do. Not that she doesn't have any individual agency, but that if you are in a position of power, like the attorney general, you are inevitably, I, I believe that just structurally, the way the structure is set up, you are going to do things that perpetuate currently existing systems of hierarchy and oppression. And so it's this like one, two, three thing where we can't even have a conversation about what it means to have a half Indian, half black woman on the vice presidential slot because of all of these other things around power and history and position that go into, you know, when we're looking at her. Whereas Joe Biden, as a, you know, middle-class, older, white man, cisgender, like hetero, it's not that he hasn't experienced his own share of you know, hardship or whatever. And it's not that he isn't also subject to structural constraints, but he has this, he he gets this kind of freedom to just be a person, right? Like mm -hmm. he, he gets to be a person not bound by all of these constraints of identity or structural, structural, um, what's what I'm looking for? Like structural constraints, right? Like he, he just gets to be a person. And I think mm -hmm. sometimes I find myself like envying white people because y'all just get to be people. Like you, you don't have to be people bound by a particular identity in the way that so many like hyphenate Americans have to be. And so then coming back to this idea of having a conversation, it is so hard to sit down and have relationship and have conversation when like you're sitting on a little wooden stool and someone else is sitting on like a throne, right? Like how do you have an equal conversation even if the other people didn't ask to be seated on that throne? That's my that's my counter to your optimism. Mm -hmm. I'd like to be a more optimistic person, but this is the stuff is hard. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining this ongoing conversation as we seek to unearth meaning in the everyday stuff of life. For show notes or to connect with this community of seekers, visit us online at www.ofdustanddivinity.com. Join our Facebook group, which is called Of Dust and Divinity Podcast Community, and engage us on Instagram 
at of dust and divinity, all one word. Hey, and if this conversation was meaningful to you, like it was meaningful to me, leave a rating and a review on your favorite streaming platform so that more people just like us can discover this podcast and join the conversation themselves. And don't forget to subscribe. Here is a sneak peek of the next episode. Enjoy. Planning with my company, it's this idea that it's all about the money, honey. And that idea that money and the creation of wealth is the end all be all. It's really interesting in corporate America back in the day and still today to a certain extent, you know, people in England (laughs) a couple hundred years ago could literally be killed for stealing, hung for stealing a loaf of bread. So that's like property was much more important than human life. Um, And you could see that strain still um, through our legal system. And there is an idea within corporate law of shareholder primacy is that the idea of that corporations should maximize the return on investment for the shareholder. So what you get when it's in this world where there is white patriarchy is, as I said, the people in positions of power making the most money in the company I'm at are almost all white males. And then um, we are encouraging the concentration of wealth in our country in our tax code. And that obviously helps people who have power. because they own that property. A huge thank you to my wife for supporting this passion project. And a great big thank you to Michelle Lim of the Everly Collective for all the brand content, including the name of this podcast and the cover art. As you go through your day, remember these words of Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given to you for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now.